Hello and welcome to What Goes Around podcast. I'm Eamon Murtagh. I'm Anne Frankenstein. And we are here in beautiful Hackney looking for records and enjoying the summer sunshine because, well, we can and it's nice to be together and it's nice to be out. <laughs> it's nice to be in physical proximity and we are headed somewhere very exciting very shortly. But before that, we're going to chat a little bit about Record Store Day, what it means to us and... Uh, you know, whether or not we participated this year, because it was only last weekend. That's true. And uh, to celebrate Record Store Day, we're going to go to the kind of a record store that really doesn't do Record Store Day. <laughs> this is the, one of the great record stores of Hackney and London in general. Eldica Records in Dalston is the kind of a place where you never know what you're going to find and you've got to dig for it, whatever it is. And on this week's episode, we are joined by one of the coolest women in rock and roll. Her career sprawls across writing, across music, across acting. If you've ever seen the film Born in Flames, then uh, you will know exactly who we're talking about. Adele Bertay is sharing her photographic memories with us. I cannot wait. I have to say, it was one of the most interesting and illuminating interviews we've done. As a woman who has really lived her life and made some amazing records. And is also one of the loveliest people. I yeah. mean, I don't want to say that we've ever spoken to you because we've only ever spoken to lovely people, but like just a modest, humble person considering the rock and roll adventures she's had. Incredible woman. Incredible. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of What Goes Around. We certainly enjoyed making it. And shall we pot? Ah, uh, let's go! Let's go, let's do some potting. Welcome to What Goes Around. I'm Eamon Murtagh. I'm Anne Frankenstein. And we are on a day trip out into Dalston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we thought because there's a, we've just done the record store day thing that we might try and visit a record store that isn't one of those record stores that's going to sell you the glow-in-the-dark 12-inch of Ghostbusters reissued. <laughs> Shame that. I would quite like that. You keep talking about that. Does that exist? It did exist. Now, I stood behind a, a chap... Uh, who was buying it once in flashback on record store day and i was i was a bit sneery to begin with i was thinking but then i saw the delight on the child's face who received the the glow in the dark (laughs) and disc and i thought that'll be his first record and that'll be a good thing ray parker jr you can't beat a bit of if you follow that back catalog back pre-Ghostbusters. Yeah, radio and all that. Although I did, the last interview I saw with uh, Ray Parker Jr. was him, he's doing some promo for the the latest Ghostbusters reboot. And um, basically they they wheel him on. He does four minutes of Ghostbusters, they wheel him off again. And uh, they're a nice little chat. And then the the lady at the end of the interview sort of said, um, do you ever get, you know, you know, how do you feel about performing Ghostbusters? And he goes, well, you know, they pay me thousands of pounds. They fly me all around the world. They put me up in a nice hotel. I do four minutes work and then I'm finished. I still love that yeah, song. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but yeah, I was in Ireland over the weekend there for Record Store Day. So I missed the whole melee. And I don't usually go in for it anyway because uh, I don't like being jostled. Mm. So anywhere where I'm likely to be jostled. And I don't like queuing for things, Eamon. I'm just not, no, not into that. You're not a queuer. No, but I was. I do have fond memories of working in Flashback Records in Shoreditch. One Record Store Day a few years ago. And the atmosphere in the record store was really joyous and wonderful. I felt like there was a real electricity. And it was nice to see so many people piling in. But it is a bit of a corporate, has become a bit of a corporate, a corporate thing with all the reissues and everything mm. very expensive. And I know there's some record stores that are quite against it and choose to update 
all together. Well, I think even more, more so than the stores, the big problem with Record Store Day is that the labels cannot get pressing time at, at vinyl factories. Yes. Because ever since WEA and Sony and all that have got in on the game, well, they're just they're clogging up the, the printing machines for months and months on end, getting ready for this kind of jamboree. Yeah. And unfortunately, it means if you're running a small record label like Pressure Sounds or you know, any of those smaller dance labels, then you just can't find the time to get your things pressed. I suppose the thing is, it was originally intended to help support record stores, independent record stores. And it did that. Which it, which it still does, you yeah. know. The, the only problem is it's now inconveniencing the small record labels. So it's kind of, yeah, taking with one hand, giving with another. Yeah, it's very difficult, very difficult. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. I, I tend not to buy very much on it, from it anymore. One or two things... But I certainly don't go in for the six o'clock in the morning queues anymore. No. But I think that's because they're perhaps not putting out the kind of releases that I really want anymore. They do seem to be nearly all reissues. Quite often reissues of pretty easy to get stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me and you, Eamon, a place like Eldica here in Dawson is really more our kind of jam. The kind of place where you can't go in there with an agenda. You just need to spend the hours, put in the time, and you're unlikely to find a glow-in-the-dark Ghostbusters uh, 12 inch. I would say you are very unlikely to find that, <laughs> But you are likely to find many, many gems and jewels. Yeah, it may not glow in the dark, but there are plenty of illuminating records. Indeed. See what I did there? You did. I yeah, did I that. noticed this. Well so, look, since we're in Dalston, should we go to Eldica? I would, I would be waiting for you to ask that question. Let's go. Let's go digging! Let's go digging! Well, here we are in deepest, darkest we're Dalston. We're outside and we're together. We're, we're, I'd say, a foot and a half apart from each other. It's the closest we've been in at least a year. That's true. And you actually, say? last time we met, we were in a park and someone on a motorbike came by and nearly ran us over. <laughs> so, um, I'm hoping... This is Dalston, so we're prepared for that <laughs> yeah, now. There's a piece of unidentified chicken matter on the floor near us. Looks like a genuine piece of raw chicken. Yeah. So, Dawson. <laughs> Dawson hasn't changed. Smoldering, That's good to know. Smoldering in the sun. But listen, although we've travelled deep into the hipster's <laughs> nest of Dalston, we've come here for a very special reason. Because it has one of our favourite record stores hidden down Bradbury Street. And it's called Eldica Records. It's run by a nice man called Andy Westbury. And he's asked us in for a chat and uh, well we couldn't resist because this is the kind of place like, you can order records can't you you can order records you yeah i often do click on the old internet yeah you can you can go into a shop even but you can't go into many shops like this indeed not and also you don't get the ambience don't get vibes. the ambience this is yeah. that eh? yeah but the also the nice thing about a place called Eldica is it's one of those record shops you can't really go in there with an agenda. It's like going into Lidl. If you go in there with a the shopping list, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. You have to wait and see what they have on those middle aisle those shelves. Middle aisles. That's you, what Aldi like, is like. You want to come out with a spacesuit <laughs> and, and one of those tents that folds up into your handbag. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Where do I get one of those? <laughs> well, it's lovely to be here. I mean, the reason we come really is that this is like one of our favourite places to come and have a dig. Because it's. You never know what you're going to get, and there's always yeah, something indeed. to be found if you can dig for a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. You get a lot of footfall here for Redwood Store Day. Not really. I mean, we're not really that kind of shop. Yeah. Where, you know, they queue up for new releases and stuff. It's a different scene, really. 
Yeah. So you didn't get any sort of, you didn't pick up any of the strays, waifs of strays wandering around? Yeah, one or two out that maybe were doing the rounds, but we're never yeah. that busy on yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not the kind of shop where you're selling the glow-in-the-dark Ghostbusters reissue. No, we're looking at one ourselves for 40 quid and stuff. I know, it's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. But what's the, because, well, you're very hot on the old Instagram. You're one of those accounts where you'll put up little gems that I've never heard of or seen before. That's the whole point, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but you're very good at it. And I feel like that kind of represents the ethos of the whole shop because it is one of those places you can't necessarily come in with an agenda but no. you will come out with some good stuff that's intentional is it What's yeah totally i mean people people are usually coming with the most, the most ridiculous wants list right something they've seen a dj play or whatever and you know there's thousands of people chasing the same record um but in here we're not you know we might get it in we might have had it in four years ago yeah. might not see another copy but we're mainly you know, just other gems that you pay for a stack and you don't know what you're going to find, you know. Because we're always buying, we always have records in, records out all the time. I'm always chasing collections, I'm always chasing records, so I'm a record hunter at heart, you know. I'm into collecting stuff for myself as well, so I'm always looking for myself. They haven't been around for so long, I mean, you must have seen a lot of scenes bubble up and disappear and, yeah, totally. you know. Well, me personally, I've always, I, I'm, when I started off being into like hip hop and electro, yeah. So about 83, 84 was when I first started going to record shops. But I'm quite single-minded, so I was into that, then I was into the soul and the funk and the breaks, yeah. the James Brown, jazz, whatever, you know, funky music. I've not really, I, yeah. I never, I remember a time before house music, you know. There yes, was no, indeed. Yeah. I remember that time and I liked it a lot. You know, I never <laughs> embraced that four to the floor yeah. beat. Is it mainly DJs who you get coming in here, like diggers who are looking for stuff like that? Like, who's your clientele? You oh, it rain, honestly, it's so rain. You know, we'll get the 12-year-old coming in who doesn't know how to use a turntable. We'll have to show him how to use a turntable. Yeah. And he'll buy his first record from me, and that's, like, the best thing yeah. in the world because that's a memory because I remember my first record where I went Groove Records going in and buying hip-hop 12s. Yeah. And the, th the, the feeling that I had, they might have associated with us, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we've got like 90 year old jazz collectors. Yeah. But, you know, one guy, Frank, he's, you know, he saw Tubby Hayes in 1952, you know, um, and he's 90. And he's, he brings me a Christmas card and a birthday card <laughs> and a present for my birthday <laughs> and buys records. You know, he'll tell you about a Dizzy Gillespie session in 1948 and tell you every player, yeah. everything, you know, it's the, the amount of interesting people yeah. it's everything it's djs people from around the world sammy there he was on he was on lwr in the 80s right yeah <laughs> the first reggae dj on on lwr <laughs> you know it's a claim still yeah. digging look right it's still digging yeah Nothing um, to love. <laughs> from regulars to to just people that wander in you know yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i can remember coming in here like a couple of times you know i'm digging away and i can hear you having a chat and I remember the guy from the Funkies came in one oh, time. Oh, he was in it today, yeah. Was he in today? Yeah, yeah, Danny, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's like a proper, if you know your, your West African music, he's like a proper legend, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, no, like he really is, superstar. yeah. I mean, that's the thing, it's also like in this community, in this area, you can't really, you've got to treat everyone the same because you don't know who someone is, you know. Yeah. It could be, you think, an elderly man in his 60s, you know, he's, he's played in the Funkies or, you know. <laughs> it's unbelievable the, the wealth of this, this community, particularly Dalston, you yeah. know. Historically, you know, going back to the 60s, you know, the people that played him, Bob Marley, you know, you know, whoever, you know, people, you know, were in the area, you know, and lived in the area and the record shops that were here and, you know. All right, Sammy, no worries. <laughs> I'll let you know, yeah? I'll give you a text if some bits turn up. Yeah, all right. Frank, what were your, um, what were your like, 
favourite periods, if you know, around, around here? What, what is, there, is there a particular time you look back on and think, there was a really good scene here, everything was buzzing and, you know... No, because I think I can embrace everything, really. You know, you've got to move with the times, right? Yeah. I mean, NTS Radio, right? Before NTS Radio, Ed, who set up NTS Radio, used to work here on a Sunday. Ah. You know, he's one of our first customers, wow. um, I remember, when we had the smaller shop in the same street. That was an interesting time because it was just a little bit less complicated and stuff mm. and DJing was a little bit different. But then, you know, the radio show thing came about. Um, there seemed to be a lot more DJs. Everyone went off on different tangents and mm. were radio show, and it was so, so diverse. It was like, wow, you know. But then people would be playing, like, MP3s on the radio and stuff and not records and, yeah. and things like that. And I, I remember thinking, that's not good for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember getting into a conversation argument, in fact, with someone about, yeah, my friend's got the biggest re- collection of MP3s. Oh, my God. He's got 45,000 MP3s. I'm thinking... Are you even serious? You know, <laughs> we're a record shop. We're, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. We're gonna pick them up and have a look. Don't yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's a good times all the time, really. That's the best way to do it. Absolutely. Should we have a little poke? Yeah, we just because like basically, yeah, we're, we're doing a podcast and okay. we've come to have an interview and a chat with you because you've got a great shop. But really, it's just an excuse to come yeah, out. No, and do yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> well, look right. anywhere. Oh, you found the disc, have you? Don't be muscling oh, yeah, on I'm my territory. I'm on this side, mate. Let's have a look. Come on, get those out of my way. I've got, I've, I've got every much a right. Fern Kenny, that's a lovely record. I can't believe you would muscle in this close to my zone in COVID yeah. time. You got, you got four or five quickly. You've got no chill. Hmm. I'm just going to listen to them. I thought you were just having a nice laid-back experience until you turn it into a competition. <laughs> See, you've got the advantage of height here. You've got about five or six inches on me. That's true. I just stand on my tippy toes. Probably feels like a race now. Sweat. It's quite hot though, you know. It's it's bound to be. Especially with a mask on. So we've managed to work our way out of Eldica Records now with uh, a bag of loot each. And uh, I think we should share what we've got. And what treasure did you find hidden in the racks? Well, first of all, I have a special Eldica old school tote bag, apparently the last in its run. I expect this to to increase in value as the years go by. I I shall treasure it. Mm -hmm. So I had a little dig in the, the boogie disco section, in the hip hop section, Andy found me some disco rap because that's a subject that we connect on. So first off, I have uh, a sort of funk disco track, BT Express, always sound good, Mm -hmm. a track called This Must Be The Night. I have a Neil B body rock classic early rap track, another great early rap track, which I wasn't familiar with, uh, Do It Any Way You Wanna, um, Mike T. Andy found that for me. Slave, another great disco group, can't go wrong Mm -hmm. with stepping out. And I I could not resist this. It's very compressed. It doesn't sound great. It's often the way with kind of uh, 80s vinyl compilations. But it's called Breakdance, the best music for breaking, learn to moonwalk, electric boogie, footwork, headspin, headspin. I'm going to learn to headspin. And top rock. I couldn't resist it because... Not only does it have some incredible tracks on it from people like Freeze and Daz Band and Alex and the City crew, it also has a poster inside with a guide on how to break down. So 
Oh you won't recognise me. I'm going to be popping and locking and head spinning all over the gaff. I'm very pleased. What have you picked up there? Some treasures. Well, listen, I look forward to visit you in A&E. <laughs> I have uh, picked up some lovely things, actually. Um, so I, I picked up a, a soul jazz compilation uh, of uh, soulful reggae just because you can never go wrong with the soul jazz compilation. And it was there and it was cheap. Um, I found uh, an old Cameo 12-inch from 1977 which has a track called Funk Funk. Now, I'm just guessing that's going to be funky because uh, early cameo is like a great disco secret. I've got um, Patrick Adams' Music, Music 2, the album. Some sexy models There's on the some front very there sexy. as well. Because well, famously, um, it was all invented, wasn't it? They basically just hired a load of models to, to be the band. I don't think the models had a great deal to do with it. But they do look fine on the cover and it's on Prelude, so that's always a good disco thing. And of course, with the British Hustle being the um, the uh, zeitgeist at the moment, I found a copy of High Tensions album, and I just thought I'd pick that up. This, I think, is my favourite one. This is uh, on Checker Records, and it's the Jordan Singers, A Plea to the People. This is some raw-ass gospel, and uh, it's real, like, come on, come on, come on, like all that happy, clappy stuff. So um, I'm looking, that just sounded like a football match. I didn't sound like gospel at all. <laughs> They're going to sort you out, Eamon, don't there's, worry. There's too much football on the telly. I'm losing my gospel <laughs> funk. Um, but I'm sure that is going to be an interesting um, little record to pick up. It's 1973, full gospel choir. That's what I want to hear. That was that was a successful, long, fun, sweaty dig. We really got into it there. Got a bit competitive at one point. Yeah, there was a bit of, bit of shoulder rebarging <laughs> by the by the disco without Nothing a doubt. Nothing wrong with a bit of healthy competition, but uh, man, El Diga, what an incredible shop. I'm just so glad that it exists. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. The word polymath hardly begins to describe our next guest. She's been and continues to be a fundamental part of so many scenes in so many different ways as a musician, working with James Chance and the Contortions, as a poet opening for the likes of Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, as a model for people like Nan Golden and David LaChapelle, a backing singer for Culture Club and Whitney Houston, a songwriter for Scritti Politti, the Pointer Sisters, and of course our friend Lydia Lunch, a film director, an activist and a prolific writer. She's just released a book on why LaBelle matters. More on that later. She also founded the trailblazing group The Bloods, who made some of the funkiest music in no wave history. I'm genuinely just tipping the iceberg here. Adele Berté, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Anne. I'm so pleased to be here with you. Thanks. It's honestly a thrill. Thank you for making that wonderful record, Button Up With The Bloods, which I've inserted into so many DJ sets. Any ah. excuse I get. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> I have much more to thank you for, but that specifically. Obviously, you're here to, to share your phonographic memories with us, and we'll, we'll dig into those in a moment. But I guess I'm curious, you know, genuinely in that introduction, I've just barely touched the iceberg. How do you think of yourself now? What, what are your sort of primary, um, 
what what do you primarily pay attention to in terms of your work these days how do you describe yourself well oh wow it's <laughs> it's so hard because uh you know i'm kind of well maybe i would explain myself as a hummingbird because <laughs> i, I kind of have to light from one flower to the next i i can't stay too long in one spot you know uh in terms of uh, art and and music and but i i think i'm moving more into being a writer these days and of course i'll always do music because i absolutely love it it saved my life but um yeah, I love writing. I, I absolutely adore it and, and can see myself doing that for however long <laughs> I have left on this mortal coil, you know. And did you, did you, did the writing come first? Did the music come first? Tell us a little bit about your, your journey. When I was a really young, like a little kid, I, I wrote stories and, um, and, and then started singing when I heard some of the most magical voices in, in the American musical canon from coming off of the radio, you know, mm. um, voices like Dionne Warwick when she was singing Burt Bacharach and mm. Aretha Franklin and um, some of the crooners like Gene Pitney, you know, I, I just thought I thought the human voice was just so magical and, and, a, and a kind of a, a way of transport out of a uh, a, a difficult world that I was experiencing when I was young. I started singing just to just to kind of calm myself, to heal myself when I was very, very young. And it turned out to be like a lifelong passion. And how did you, because you were born in, in Cleveland, right? And you found yeah. your way to, to New York um, at a time when there were really big things happening there and you found yourself at the, the sort of forefront of this no-wave scene. How, how did you end up in New York and how did you get in with that sort of clique of people? Well, there was a, a guy named Peter Lochner who was a guitar player in Cleveland, and he w co-founded the uh, the band Per Ubu, who you've probably oh, yeah. know of. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a catalyst in that scene. He, he, he was good at uh, supporting people that he thought had talent, and he would create bands and, and then walk away from them because he was also very self-destructive. And he was my best friend for... About a year and a half, we were roommates. He discovered me singing, and he really supported me getting out front and, and, and as a singer. But he died uh, at 24 years old in 1977 from acute alcohol poisoning and Gosh. drugs. You know, this was devastating for me because we had planned to move to New York together to do music. And mm -hmm. so, of course, when he died, I had to leave Cleveland. I had to kind of pursue the dream that we had but on my own. So that's what got me to New York. And, and there were also people from Cleveland who'd also uh, emigrated to New York City. <laughs> Might as City, well be, you know? Yeah, yeah, because it was such a different terrain, you know? So you, it was the music that kind of brought you to New York. I think it's, it's always interesting, when I, when I was growing up, you'd hear a, a, you know, a name of a place like New York. And mm -hmm. it, in my brain, that was that it was just a bunch of musicians sitting around on a corner. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. the, the, you actually followed that dream and actually went out there and and took your chances with it. I mean, you, how old are you when you moved in? I moved uh, in. I was twenty two when I moved to New York, and it was just extraordinary what was going on there at the moment. There were the most exciting element of it for me was the fact that so many women from all over the world 
were coming to New York at the time from Japan, France, Germany, London, Birmingham, mm. um, Ireland, everywhere. And it was just so exciting because it wasn't just about women picking up instruments and making music. Women were shooting films, uh, taking photographs, writing, doing poetry readings. Uh, and it was, everyone was kind of collaborating with one another. And, and in a lot of ways, I, I do believe that because of the presence of women and breaking all gendered ideas of what women should do and just being totally creative, it also pushed the guys in the scene to go that much further, to take that many more risks, I feel. And it was just absolutely uh, exciting and nothing like it has ever happened uh, in, in history where so many women uh, artists uh, gathered in one place in one time. Mm. Yeah. It's definitely a, a, a thing as well that, um, you know, all of these uh, different creative forces, um, you know, making the music, making the films, or whatever, it was very much uh, an artistic sensibility that kind of bound you all together, it seems to me. It's like, it's not necessarily that you were all doing the same thing, but you're mm -hmm. all moving in the same world and all had this idea that there was art to be made. You know, you weren't just knocking out a tune, you were, you were contributing to the the fabric of everything that's around you yeah yeah it was it was a you know kind of an artist activism uh mm. as well because we were fighting against all of the consumer capitalist culture that had just you know uh left left i mean the american dream has always been a chimera you know yeah. um but for us it, it we, we were just rejecting all of what the culture was telling us that how we should be um, so, you know, and some of us were into Dada and surrealism. Others were into like a uh, the music of, uh, I call it like a brutalist mm -hmm. approach to music, where it was really about just smashing everything and uh, creating a noise from, from, you know, the detritus that was left us, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, New York was a wasteland uh, in 1970s. It was just, you know, it kind of looked like... Uh, Berlin after the war it was just devastating and the president had had called it uh, I think it was president Gerald Ford at the time um I he he told the city to drop dead mm. because they they he, he wouldn't give you know he wouldn't give them he wouldn't give the city any money to recover from the you know economic uh, uh, dire straits it was in at the time but for us it was magical. It was like we had this incredible junkyard and you never knew what, what you would find. And in the finding came the collaborations of making something out of this, out of this um, detritus left us, you know? Yeah. Mm. And, it, you know, we, we obviously spoke to Lydia Launch recently for this podcast, who was a contemporary of yours, uh, presumably mm -hmm. at that time. I know your friends. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because she said the same thing. It was it was liberating to be a woman at that time too, because mm -hmm. of the 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 freedom and the lack of inhibition you had to to make art. And kind of out of that, I guess, grew this incredible trailblazing band, The Bloods, which I feel like really don't get enough credit as being a part of that scene or part of music generally. How did that band come together, and what what was your experience of, of being in that group my goodness you know there weren't any female rock and roll bands in those days I mean I think I think the runaways existed but we always thought of the runaways as kind of like 
you know, playing into the whole stereotype mm-hmm. of the of the girl, um, the girl band. And yes, Cherry Bomb was a great pop record, but that's not where the Bloods were at. You know, we wanted to do something a bit more, uh, a combination of funk and punk, really. Mm-hmm. But I met I met the guitar player Kathy Ray, and she, uh, we just started jamming together. And and then we put we put an ad in the Village Voice for other female musicians and found uh, each other that way and uh yeah and our first recording our, our first trip was actually to birmingham uh and we recorded button up for the au pairs label um called exit records um yeah. and played a few gigs with the au pairs and we met the au pairs the bloods uh at a venus Weltklang festival which was a festival of all female fronted and and mostly female membered bands in berlin I think it was 1980, and the au pairs were playing the Slits, um, so many different bands. It was such a great festival. Yeah, I wish they would re- reissue that album because there was an album, oh my God. Uh, and I do have and I do have recordings from, you know, the the performance that the Bloods did. But they really should somebody should reissue that record because we, we, we would definitely there. buy that. Yeah, let's let's. let's <laughs> Let's get on to the factory. We got we got something you need pressing ASAP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to hear the blood songs from that particular show, I do I do have them on my website on the music page in case Great. you want to have a listen there. They're there. Amazing. Yeah. So that's Adel- adelbrite.com, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm interested in how you discovered your skills as a songwriter because the Bloods, I mean, you talk about uh, the, the, the sound of the music kind of reflecting the, the detritus of the city and it was all quite messy and noisy. But the Bloods have this very funky, like you say, you know, very coherent sound. Um, mm. is, that, is that how you came to discover your sort of prowess as a songwriter through writing with the Bloods? I think so, but but also you know Brenda Alderman, the bass player, um, was so exceptionally talented at funk. You know, mm-hmm. she was a black woman from Queens, and she just could play her ass off, really. And uh, and I came from you know a reformatory in Cleveland where I was singing gospel music with black girls. I was kind of like the anomaly when it comes to white white girls in Cleveland. I mean, there was such segregation happening mm. in Cleveland and all over America at that time. And funny enough, I, I, I was thinking, you know, one of the only ways that white people had close proximity with black people was if you were incarcerated, you know, which is just pretty <laughs> dreadful. But uh, but um, yeah, so I grew up with soul as as like, you know, the, the, the uh, formative uh, voice for me. And um, so when we got Brenda into the band, um, the music really took on a, a very a funkier mm. kind of uh, attitude. There's a, a great series of compilations called New York Noise, put together yes. by Soul Jazz Records. Yes. Um, and you've got a few tracks on, on there um, scattered uh-huh. around. But it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting for me as, as a, a music lover that, again, this is a scene that doesn't have its own sound. It doesn't have mm-hmm. a definitive, you know, ESG next to Martin Rev from Suicide, next to yes. Theoretical Girls. Everyone's doing their own thing. Some of it is blunt and noisy. Lydia Lunch's Teenage Use of the Jerks, for example, is, you know, it's a sledgehammer through an electric guitar. Yes. But then what you're doing is sharp and tight and has corners. It's like, it's like the way the 
Slits used to play as well, where mm. there's all this punk rock talk going on. And mm-hmm. much of it is to do with just having a go, DIY, smash it about. But there's a few people in these scenes who are precise about what they're doing. And, and they they really fascinate me because mm-hmm. I, I listen to people like, like the Bloods or like early talking heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you put them beside television and the Ramones and stuff, there's a there's a, a brilliant thing that holds them together. And yet they are completely different, aren't they? Yeah, very much so. Uh, when I first got, got to New York, having a good voice was uh, was not <laughs> a cool problem, thing. Yeah. <laughs> you sound too good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I kind of, you know, I remember I sang Chain of Fools with the Contortions uh, once at Max's Kansas City. And the crowd, you know, seemed to really enjoy it, but James didn't enjoy it too much because he was the lead singer. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it was really hard at first uh, for me because I, I, I felt like I couldn't really be myself in that scene. And, and then um, eventually, you know, it, 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 was, it was very unmelodic, that scene. Mm, yeah, melody exactly. was not, yeah, it wasn't, about mel- it wasn't about melody at all. And funny enough, when I was working for Brian Eno, I assisted him for, for a moment um, when we did the No New York album. And uh, right before I, I, I had to leave that position because I was going on tour with Lydia and Scott and Beth B. But when I was leaving, I, I asked him, I said, so, Brian, what do you think is the, is the uh, future of music? And this was just after we had uh, uh, done No New York. And he, he kind of winked and said, Melody. <laughs> so I took, so I took that to like you know be my launch pad to finally start singing you know the way that, I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a, he's got a pretty good track record on picking up on the new thing, isn't he? So <laughs> oh, we'll, very we'll, much we'll, so. we'll bow to Mr. Eno's yeah. yes. knowledge. Um, but <laughs> yeah. the first the first phonographic memory you've picked is uh, is a classic soul track, Roberta Flax. Compared to what? Talk to us about your your relationship with this track and why you picked it. Yeah. Well, you know, I I was in this reformatory called Blossom Hill, the school for girls, school for wayward girls, actually. Wow. Hang on a second. <laughs> and, there's a story there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a big story there. You might have to wait for that book to drop. But I was six, 15 when I heard that record. It was I, it was released in 69, but it was 1970. I was in Blossom Hill. And sometimes the uh, matrons or girls' family members would bring in records for us because uh, we were allowed to, to listen to uh, music in the, in the early evenings. And her record, uh, what was it called? First the first take. time ever. Uh, yeah, the first time. So the album was First Take. Somebody brought in the album First Take and because of the first time ever I saw your face. And then I heard compared to what, and it just... It was such a revolution in the way I thought about music because it was the first time I heard a woman singing about the political situation mm-hmm. of being black in America, and and it was such it was so revelatory to me that she you know that she was talking about these things and um, it it really made me think about um, you know uh, what what would the future be around race in America. And, um, you know, today we think about that and and how far have we come, really? I mean, America is just, it's a country that's been based, is based on genocide and on slavery. 
and we still haven't really reckoned. I mean, it's it's starting, but every time we take a few steps forward, it seems we get knocked back, of, you know, four more. Mm. So, um, but yeah, it was very revelatory to me, and I just, I absolutely loved the song and thought, okay, there are possibilities to talk about things in music that aren't always about love. is the motivation hanging up the whole damn nation looks like we always end up in a rut trying to make it real but compared to what slaughterhouse At that young age, were you cognizant of what was happening around you politically, or was it the song that kind of brought, brought your attention to that in a kind of coherent way? Um, actually, no, I was, you know, when I was young, um, you know, nine, ten years old, watching civil rights marches on TV, watching, um, and as I, you know, before I was taken out of my family, um, you know, I was very aware of it. My mother was was just wrecked by racism. Um, my father, uh, or the man I thought was my father, was Italian, working class, was ve vehemently racist. Mm -hmm. And of course, this, you know, the marriage didn't last very long, mm -hmm. but um, but I was very cognizant of it. I, the problem was I was wasn't around any black people, and I felt I felt like an just an empathy with them because I was going through a lot as a child in my household in terms of trauma and abuse and violence. So this, you know, it was the outward expression of, you know, seeing on TV what was going on. Uh, I felt that em empathically in my heart that, you know. The, this was also happening to me, and I didn't have a way to explain it, um, but I, I understood their pain. Did that influence your songwriting after that? Because obviously, you know, it opened up a world where you didn't just have to hear music about love, but did that kind of, did something kind of click in your brain? Like, oh, maybe I'll write music that says something too. Yeah, I, I mean, the Bloods, we wrote a couple of songs there was a song called undercover nation that we wrote which was very political and, and lizzie borden used it in the film um, uh, born in flames mm. and also we wrote a song called blue chevrolet which was about gender and america and um yeah so so yes the politics did come into into the songwriting early on mm. when you were doing those those sort of early tracks and, and trying to express yourself in a, on a more serious level what what sort of um, barriers did you face trying to get them out there? Because that must have seemed, 
there's so many odd things about where, if you'll pardon me saying it, there's so many odd things about where you're coming from. Do you understand? You, yes. You, uh, white girl with a black sensibility and, um, you know, Cleveland into New York and um, kind of able to sing, but part of this no wave thing. It must have been, I mean, I hate to use the word, but it must have been hard to kind of market that and get that out. How did how did that actually, was it just down to that no wave album that managed to get it to more ears? Who was playing that stuff? Um, are you talking about the contortions or the bloods or? Well, yeah, I mean the contortions and the bloods, and, and just uh -huh. I, I'm interested in the fact that it was quite a small sort of scene of people mm -hmm. doing disparate things, and none mm -hmm. of it would have seemed if I was running WKR whatever. Um, I'm not sure I'd know what to do with half of those artists. Yeah, not on any type of commercial radio, that's for sure, right? Mm. I mean, you, you, you all had John Peel, who was very brave and yeah. would play things, um, you know, that no other radio station would. Um, in my case, you know, I was always the anomaly. I mean, it was, I was out. I was queer at a time when, you know, artists were so deeply in the closet. Um, the you know the bloods we were all gay and people um, were terrorized by us. <laughs> I remember when we played Amsterdam. You know it was we just we were like a girl gang from you know the outer limits and um, I mean people loved it because they'd never seen anything like it. But it wasn't the kind of thing that the commercial music yeah. industry would ever embrace in a million years because we we worked completely against what gendered females should present as in the music business you know so you know we didn't have a chance <laughs> yeah it amazes me you, you must have been so much against the grain at that time and uh, yeah. sometimes when you talk to people who who've been synonymous with certain scenes it's like the actual time of the scene wasn't a period which they'd even considered a success. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It becomes later mm -hmm. on, it, people write about how influential it was. You know, like the right. Velvet Underground didn't sell any records, did they? I mean, but then years and years later, they became the figurehead for all the avant-garde ideas that one could have. Right, it, yeah. I'm interested to see, you know, who got out, who who managed to to, to get themselves heard despite it just being totally against the the grain of what you'd say was mainstream radio in those days yeah i'm trying to think of like in terms of the bands from that period of time in the late 70s early 80s i mean z records was quite influential mm. um and and but they had you know kid creole and the coconuts and yeah. lizzie mercier and um um which lizzie had a hard time mm. because she was a woman who was breaking you know genre rules um, and Kid Creole also had a hard time because of their racial mix, and it was a, also a music that they couldn't pinpoint into a genre, you know. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was it was a really really hard time. I think I think painters and filmmakers probably fared a lot better than a lot of the musicians that were doing stuff at that yeah. time, you know, like Jean Michel Basquiat, uh, yeah. Nan Golden. Um, uh, John Laurie, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that came out of that. Um, but, you know, John's a painter now. He doesn't really do music anymore. Mm. But it's funny how 
much international fascination there still is for yeah. that particular scene. Well, it, it's funny. I, I often wonder if, if uh, people who are part of it get a bit jaded with everyone's sort of, <laughs> you know, the nostalgia yeah, yeah. from people who yeah. aren't actually there. Do you get yeah. sort of, do you get a little bit tired of, of having experienced it and probably talked about it uh, uh-huh. to a large extent? Do you ever get tired about people kind of fantasizing about it in that way? I do. And that's one of the reasons I'm writing a book about it. Ah. <laughs> Get it all out there. Because you already have a memoir out, right? Uh, yeah, wonder, I have. Is, is this a sequel to the memoir or is this a, a different? Yes. Uh, no, this amazing. this book, yeah, this book is the sequel. It's called No New York and it's, uh, you know, it takes off from my book, Peter and the Wolves, where that left off with my departure from Cleveland to New York. And um, basically it begins there with me joining the contortions and it, it's a journey through um, also the corporate music business. Um, and why I left it and kind of the book concludes uh, when I when I take off to LA and say I've had enough <laughs> I've had enough amazing I feel like this is gonna th- this book is gonna um, yeah. answer the million questions we have left at <laughs> that period. and also yeah I mean the, the corporate aspect is really interesting too mm. I was because um, when I looked at your uh, you know Wikipedia and all that sort of thing and went through this I was surprised um Initially, because I kind of have you in my head as this kind of art rocky thing that happens at a certain time, and of course, then you don't you don't hear any more about it. But you kept working, and you did go right into all of this. What you would say is mainstream pop, and had big, big hits, like not mm. not like sort of small mess around hits. You know, mm-hmm. the, you you really managed to take your your musical ability to. Uh, another level both in terms of singing and in terms of writing mm. and you know you did it on both levels you did it at the at the, the coal face of the underground clubs and then did it on top of the pops amazing mm. mm-hmm. yeah it was quite fun but unfortunately with my record deals uh, you know it was it was just so strange because they signed me on like I, I was signed to Geffen Records one of the first acts signed to Geffen Records mm. They signed me on the strength of the demos that I had written with Brenda Alderman, the the bass player in the Bloods, which were very funky, uh, very melodic, uh, potential, you know, pop, pop, possibly hits, I don't know. But they signed me on that. And then as soon as they signed me, it was like, okay, you have to get rid of Brenda. You have to lose your female manager. And now we're going to, you know, uh, put you with who we want to put you with and it was just it ended up being a disaster the A&R man um, had Tom Tom Dolby produce my first single for Geffen and I loved working with Tom we, we got on really well you know and I did his 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 next album with him but what happened was the record company took the tapes for build me a bridge my single and had them remixed with a New York DJ without Tom's permission or to even speak to him about it. So he was livid and he wouldn't mm. produce my album because he didn't want to work with, with the people at Geffen who had insulted him like that. Yeah. So I ended up getting, oh, it's just such a saga. But I go into it in the book. But yeah. the problem is when, to be a successful music artist at the corporate level of these big major record companies, you need such a strong support system going in. Because if you don't have that, and especially as a woman, they're going to tear you apart bit by bit to manipulate you into doing what they feel is their vision of who you should be. 
and uh, that did not work for me. <laughs> no, it's amazing how many you know. times you hear those stories of like record labels zoning in on someone they think is really talented and unique and then completely attempting to dismantle <laughs> everything yes. that's good about yes. that person. It's exactly. bizarre. So it is bizarre. bizarre. Um, it's a control, you know, it's a control issue. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, but you did mention, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, you primarily think of yourself now as a as a writer and your most recent book uh, came out in March and um, it's all about LaBelle. And I'd like to hear about your love for LaBelle and, and your reasons for, for writing this book uh, as well, because LaBelle have uh, have provided your second phonographic memory with a track called Nightbird. I discovered LaBelle with Peter Lochner um I had heard their Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells single called I Sold My Heart to the Junk Man. Mm. And of course, Peter and I, being the punk rockers that we were at the time, thought, you know, they were talking about a different kind of junk than the man who <laughs> wheels his cart down the road with uh, rags and such. But anyway, uh, that's the first time I heard them. And then I started listening to to their records as LaBelle. And uh, the Laura Nero and LaBelle record was mm. just astoundingly beautiful. Um, I, my heart just broke open when I, when I heard that record. I'd never heard women's voices together so passionate, so fierce, and so loving. It really, it really uh, opened up my world. They released um, Nightbirds, their album, in 1974, in the winter of 1974, and I was at a very low point in my life um, because I wanted to be a singer, Yet there was no one um, that I found as a mirror to who I was. And I was a very boyish girl. I mean, I was, you know, gender fluid way back when. And mm. I didn't, I felt like I didn't have a chance as a singer uh, because of the way I looked and, um, you know, uh, my propensity for my love of black music. So I heard the song Nightbird on that album and... I had a lot of trauma in my life as a child and, you know, had suffered uh, a very brutal rape where I was held captive for three days um, by gunpoint. And it was just uh, an extraordinary um, thing that I lived through. And in part, I lived through it because of disassociation. Um, I was able to leave my body when the violence was happening. Um, and this is something that happens often with people that are experiencing violent trauma. You, you can just, it's like you've up and flew out of your body. Yeah. Um, and uh, after this trauma happened, I was 13 when this happened, I buried it in, I just buried the trauma and never even re recalled it, didn't think about it, nothing. And then I heard the song Nightbird and I was so uh, opened up about um, there were words in the song that went released, relived just for the day. And uh, it, it really was about uh, that flight that I took during that trauma and remem mm. remembering it and reliving it to be able to heal. And it was the music that healed me. That song opened me up to, to you know, going to therapy and to thinking about what had happened to me. and. And knowing, I knew when I heard that song that I was not alone in what had happened to me.
these women had experienced some type of trauma, they had to have to have written that song. And I later, I would later discover when I was writing the book and reading Patti LaBelle's memoir that indeed that that is exactly what happened. Patti, Patti had been sexually abused as a child as well. So the song was just, um, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, one of those pieces inside my psyche that I hold on to for strength and for healing. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. I just like such a testament to what music can do. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you get a chance to speak? Because obviously, you know, you've you've written this book and it's it's um, it's very pointedly titled Why LaBelle Matters. It's a tome, you know, uh, about her, but it's also about your personal experiences with her music. I mean, did you get to speak to um, did you get to speak to members of the band uh, or about about writing this song? Did you get to relay your sort of personal experiences at all? Um, I didn't, I never spoke to Patty, but you know, I have spoken to Nona and I have spoken to Sarah and I didn't want to talk about my trauma with them about the song. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I wanted to keep it to, um, the things I needed to learn about them for the book. Mm. You know, the, the, the fact of their three voices together and, and the fact that they were together for 16 years was also such a testament to the love between women as friends, mm -hmm. which isn't talked about a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. I think, I think women, I, I think as women, we've been trained to compete with each other, and that wasn't the case in LaBelle. You know, they really had a sisterhood, with their uh, manager Vicky Wickham as well, um, who was the producer for Ready Steady Go. When I was given the chance to pitch about who I'd like to write about, uh, LaBelle was my first choice, mm -hmm. because I think they've been terribly ignored in terms yeah. of, you know, I mean, the, mine, mine is the first book that's been written about them. I was really? totally surprised by that. Yes. Patti LaBelle, there's been books written about Patti um, and she's done memoirs, but there has not been any book about the, the trio of voices that is LaBelle. When you look back at that era as well, LaBelle were a, a, a force of their own in, in a couple of ways as well, because as you say, it was quite a long career they had. Mm. and. They, they came from this sort of gospel soul area that maybe might have been expected of, of certain artists at that time. But my mm. God, they turned into the Space Rangers from out of out of Pluto. Yeah. You know, they I just remember seeing them on top of the Pops or whatever it was in their silver spacesuits, yes. screaming out these little tough, you know, sh head shaved a woman yes. staring straight down the camera, all these psychedelic effects going off in the background. But they yeah. were fearless and really, I mean, you've obviously been empowered by a very tender moment that they've released, but there's also an awful lot of power that you could just get off their their presentation of, of themselves during the during the 70s. It was glam and it was psychedelic and it was, it was a power thing, do you know what I mean? They took control. Oh, totally, totally. I mean... You know, when they became LaBelle, um, they decided that they were going to take off the bouffant wigs and the chiffon dresses and totally go for it. And, you know, I refer to their sound in, in the book as a rage of love mm -hmm. um, because it was all you could hear the, you know, it was anger transformed into love through the power of their voices together. Um, like a, a gospel punk because of the aggression, you know, yeah. um, and it was just extraordinary their their transformation into this. They were really they sang the opening aria of Afrofuturism, mm. I yeah. think. 
you know, because they stepped out onto stage with the Nightbirds album as these space creature queens, you know. It was almost like a combination of Caribbean carnival and, um, you know, Mars, really. Um, And and no women had done that theatrically before with rock and roll. Not one woman came out as, you know, I mean, they were being brought down on wires, uh, you know, in theaters and coming up on hydraulic lifts. And it was just something else. I mean, I, I remember seeing their show in uh, early 1975 and thinking, yes, women can be uh, just as extraordinary as a David Bowie, who, you know, I had just seen with, um, not the spiders from Mars, but, uh, Young uh, Diamond Dogs, Diamond Dogs, Diamond Dogs. They're all and, great. And, I love them all. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. But but the Bowie show with Diamond Dogs was theatrical. He had a built a like faux New York City stage yeah. set and people, you know, dancers dancing beneath in sailor suits dancing beneath a street lamp. I mean, it was just incredible and very queer. Mm-hmm. And LaBelle had that same flavor, like that that flavor of bold, queer, glam ferocity um and and it was the first show i'd ever seen where the audience was equally black and white together um which was really unusual in cleveland you know yeah Yeah. Um, and then they would you know go on to do that show at the metropolitan opera house in new york city which was just i mean people are still talking about that show (laughs) that saw it you know i mean given everything that you're saying it's incredible to me. Well, first of all, that this is the first book that's been written about them, but also just that they're not remembered in this way. I feel like they're very much pigeonholed as a sort of black female soul group. Is that why they've been kind of, their influence has been sort of lost to the ether a little bit, do you think? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. It's. I think all of a sudden in the last year and a half, two years, there are books coming out now that are, are recognizing their brilliance, but their books more about, um, like for instance, there's one called Black Diamond Queens, and it talks about black women in rock and roll, like Tina Turner and Betty Davis, and um, and LaBelle has a chapter in there. So there, it's starting to come to the fore. But yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm very uh, I, I haven't gotten to <laughs> to the answer to that question why they've been ignored, and hopefully. The, this book uh, will bring some attention to that, you know. I think sometimes um, it can be a curse for a band to have the mega single. Do you know what I mean? And I think yes. part of the problem with LaBelle is uh, Lady Marmalade was just so enormous. It was yes. such a cultural thing. It, mm-hmm. it 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 was in loads of movie soundtracks. It was it was being played on the radio all the time when I was growing up. And and the clip, there's a very famous clip uh, that they show all the time in England. Uh, it's always the same performance. It's always the same setup. <laughs> but it became such an enormous thing. It kind of like it enabled people to kind of ignore everything else they did. Yeah. And I yes. only discovered sort of their their magnificence really, sort of by chance really. Where I came across um, Moonlight Shadow, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that album, and I I, I just never really. I didn't, I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't marry up in my head with Lady Marmalade. You know, it was like these. These surely must be two different people. And then you you start going through the albums, and each one gets more and more spectacular and and crazy. But I think it was easy, certainly over here, for them just to be. Oh, they're the Lady Marmalade people. That's what they right. did. 
that's that's exactly. and, we'll, and we'll just look at that and then we'll we'll move on to the next because do we really need to spend time looking at, at these people, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they did so many brilliant records. I mean, yeah, there's a, yeah. a an album called Pressure Cooking that uh, followed Moonshadow, mm. and um, it's so political and so brilliant. And I think, you know, it was their only album for RCA, and Vicki Wickham probably brought them to RCA because of David Bowie. Mm. Uh, she probably thought, well, if, 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 if they're going to support Bowie and all his, you know, imaginings that they'd be perfect for LaBelle, but instead RCA dropped them after one LP, and the LP was brilliant. Mm. So, you know, a lot of this has to do with sexism. Mm. Uh, It has to do with the ferocity of women's voices and either male DJs not wanting to play it because they don't, you know, it doesn't compute, or, um, you know, the record companies taking their cues from the DJs. I mean, it's, it's very loaded. Because, for instance, Stevie Wonder was, you know, doing Living for the City and the Isley Brothers were doing Fight the Power. Well, LaBelle were doing equally political songs that were just as musically brilliant and weren't getting played on the radio at the same time. So what does that tell you? You know, what is that bias? And I think a lot of that has to do with why they've been so, so uh, ignored. I think there's a very, very clear segue here when you talk about uh, LaBelle and their, their kind of gospel roots, their punk attitude and their sort of struggle against a sexist system and and their absolute determination to do it their way. And when mm. we look at your third phonographic memory, uh, Patti Smith, Gloria, that kind of ties all that up again in, in, a, in, a, in a slightly different way. But, you know, there is, you know, the chanteuse, the poet with a punk rock sensibility, drawing on these religious themes in Gloria and doing something which, again, I don't think the DJs of the time would have known what to do with it. And mm. yet it's still one of the great... I mean, I think for me, it's possibly the greatest opening track of any album ever, I think. I think you're right, yeah. I, I c- concur completely. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Yeah, I, I remember hearing that uh, in 1970, in the winter of 1975. Again, it was a low point in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's been several. <laughs> but, this uh, is all in your memoir. I'm, I'm loath to ask you about it now because I feel like I need to go and, and curl up with your book somewhere and read all of these stories. Actually, I've only got three th- books and two albums I need to catch up on. From yeah. That's <laughs> uh, funny. But actually, I'd go into the moment that I heard Gloria um, in 1975. It's in the Peter and the Wolves memoir, and, and I write about it. As a woman, still confused about what women, uh, how women present in music and where would I ever fit? I won't. I'm, I just m- might as well give up this dream of wanting to be a singer. And then I'm laying in bed one night in the winter of 75 and I'm listening to the radio and I hear Jesus died for somebody's. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) And it was it just it was kind of like it ripped the sky open for me when I heard that track. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton pot thieves wild cord of my sleeve thick 
heart of stone My sins my own They belong to me Me People say beware You know, as a little girl, I was religious. You know, I realized that, you know, uh, later that, you know, <laughs> the Catholic Church wasn't all it uh, put out to be. But um, I I heard in, in the lyrics and in that voice that, um, you know, women can be, we, we have such power. And the Gloria was like a, it was kind of like a clarion call to women to say, Gloria, yes, we exist. Hear our voices. Stop this colonization of our voices. That you know, we need to be heard. And it it just it it was the impetus for me to to finally get up and and sing live and to pursue music. Um, you know, it gave me the strength to do that. Yeah, and of course, Paddy you know also being a, a polymath. I mean, a songwriter and a writer. And I think she started off doing. Um, performance poetry and then she kind of got into playing music after that so was she yes. kind of a was her her lifestyle and the, the way she chose to express herself an inspiration in terms of the path that you took as well oh yes definitely I, I mean the great thing about Patty is that she would drop names in her songs or in interviews in like scene magazine or you know whatever and I and I would just devour every <laughs> thing that she mentioned, if it was Rambeau or Brancusi or Mayakovsky or, you know, Jean d'Arc by Carl Dreyer, all, you know, anything she mentioned, I would, I would run mm -hmm. and try to, to find in a library or a video store or whatever. So in a lot of ways, she was my educator in all things outside art, mm -hmm. out, you know, outsider art and um, literature as well. And yeah, so so she opened my world up to things I had never uh, experienced, and just you know, it was like a path, a pathway into some 
and into glory really (laughs) the glory the glory of art the glory of art and i i just love that i can relate to that so much because you know i remember when i first heard that that album too and of course that amazing opener and feeling the same way particularly as a woman trying to do something creative there's something so just brilliantly just unselfconscious and unapologetic about her such a cliche Mm. to say that now but like that must have been amazing being someone uh, you know a young person who felt inhibited about getting up on stage hearing patty just doing whatever the fuck she wanted to do yes (laughs) exactly and she was so androgynous as well so you know she was very gender fluid um it didn't matter to me whether she was queer or not it you know what mattered to me was this presentation Mm. and you know this idea that you 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 don't have to look like uh Olivia Newton-John in order to sing, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was just so, so, so exciting. And the poetry was, she was amazing. Oh, I mean, she still is amazing. It's still amazing. Well, I was going to say, actually, that she's another one of these people who, because she did end up going going on to have enormous, like, worldwide hits with Because the Night Belongs to Lovers or whatever. Um, mm. But she is just, like, the gold standard for never sold out, always did her art and never even looked like she doubted it for a second you know she's still doing pieces I mean I I watched a piece from her maybe two or three years ago I think it might have had um Kevin Shields and My Bloody Valentine was involved but it's kind of Mm. poetry and and noise guitar but Mm -hmm. you know it was it was off the chart it was it 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 stopped you dead in his tracks the the words were beautiful and confusing and you know, promised something. They, they promised if you listen to this enough, you're going to find out something. You know, and yeah. I, while I, I didn't, obviously I didn't grow up a, a woman, but um, I certainly <laughs> grew up a, a very, in a very sort of heavy Roman Catholic family. And yes. I can remember I got a job in the record shop and I'd never I'd never heard Patti Smith in my life, really. Um, and right. I think the guy who owned the shop put it on. And those opening lines which says, Jesus died for somebody, somebody's sins, but not mine. I mean, as a 16-year-old Catholic, that was unbelievable. Yes, that just yeah. You don't need this stuff. You don't have to yeah. take all this on. You can just right. go find your own Gloria, you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, yeah. it's, a, yes. it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, she, she basically exploded the whole Judeo-Christian kind of yeah. belief system with that <laughs> song, you know what I mean? I mean, really. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, because, you know, she does revere um, a certain holiness in life, though, yeah. because if you read her work and her poetry, it, you know, there, that Catholic symbolism pops up again and again. But it's not it has nothing to do with dogma. It has to do with a certain um, holiness and yeah. reverence that we give to certain rituals or to certain objects. You know, she curates her life in a very holy way. Um, that I think is is extremely spiritual, no matter you know what she might say um, you know about Jesus or whatever. Um, she is very reverent, and and I love that about her as well. That's absolutely what I got from it. Was that was it? It, it, it said, look, you take the dogma and throw it to one side. You know, mm-hmm. like, you can be artistic. You can you can see a higher plane. You can you can have these feelings and these thoughts, but you don't have to be part of this weird old club <laughs> yes yes exactly and one of the th- one of the poets that she turned me on to was uh, Federico Garcia Lorca who writes about um, uh, 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 something called the duende which is 
it's not a muse, but it's uh, it, it's something that poets um, need, or singers, or painters, or anyone who does art. Um, you can tell when someone has duende or not, because duende is, you have to have the courage to let this little, you know, mischievous, weird spirit in through your emotional wounds in order to let it come out through your work. You have to be vulnerable, vulnerable in order to let this, this little, little uh, creature in and let it dance back out in your work. And you can always tell when somebody has duende and when they don't, you know? And that's something I find missing in a lot of contemporary music. Not always because of the artist or the singer, but a lot of times because of the tech. They just squish the dynamics yeah. And the beauty out of the human voice. I mean, you don't hear harmony groups anymore. You don't hear the rawness of a vocal. I haven't heard it since uh, Amy Winehouse, mm. I feel, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, some, of the, some of the singers we have here in America, like Jennifer Hudson, if you watch them live, you, you, you can hear the duende. But get them into a studio and these, these tech guys just, you know, they're yeah. ruining it. They really are. I feel Sorry. like they did that a lot with Winehouse too. I was never a fan of hers particularly, and well, I didn't. I never really noticed her particularly until I heard her, until I saw footage of her singing jazz live, and I thought, holy mm. shit! Like they can, she can do so much more with her voice than yes. what they're allowing her to do, or whatever it is they're yes. trying to package her as. This was, I guess, at the beginning yeah. of her career. But yeah, did you come to know Patti Smith? Um, Personally, did you ever get to sort of meet her? And I presume, I mean, she was kind of on the same scene as you, you know, yeah, not, not to take it yeah, back well, to New York in the 1970s. Yeah, <laughs> no. But we, we were, she was like the Pied Piper and we were the, oh. you know, we were the children who followed her into Hamlin, really. But um, she, I never, I met her once, but we've never really talked at length. You know, I've always kind of revered her from afar. Um um, but yeah, I mean, I know some of the guys in her band and, and, um, you know, she's, she's maybe one day I'll be able to sit down and talk with her. That would be lovely. But, uh, uh, no, I don't know her. <laughs> oh, surely. Maybe when, um, when you're, um, the second edition of your memoir comes out, you guys mm. can sit down together. She can, she can interview you over zoom so we can all enjoy it. <laughs> wow. <amazing>. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the one thing I was going to say, the one thing we all have is that we've all got a copy of that record. And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it never gets old. Do you know what I mean? Nope. You, I, you put that on any old time. Yeah. And it's it's always, I, it, it's, it, it, it's like a movie in your head. It's a wonderful thing. So yes. thank you very much yes. for bringing it up tonight. Yeah. Tremendous choices. Thank you so much for, for coming and talking to us. It's been fascinating. And well, tell thank us, you. Tell us about, um, so you've got this, this um your memoir volume two of your your memoirs coming out what else have you got in the pipeline music wise writing or anything else you're doing um well it's not the the memoir about no new york is still kind of i'm still writing it it's not and sometimes you know publishing can take up to a year or two to, for from the uh, you know handing in of the book to the point where it actually comes out to the public so i don't think it'll be right away um, but so I'm still working on that and I'm also uh, starting to write some music. I think I'm going to do a couple of shows in August or September when things open up a bit mm -hmm. um, and probably in New York and maybe Cleveland, uh, Los Angeles, maybe San Francisco. We'll see. 
but uh, yeah, so I'm still writing music. I haven't completely kicked it to the can, <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I'm just I'm, I love writing. I it's, it's really suits me, and I love struggling with words. You know, <laughs> wrestling with a sentence is actually fun for me. Well, I can't I can't wait to read the book when it comes out. It sounds absolutely fascinating and oh, right up you. mine and Anne Street. We could bang oh. on about that stuff for days. Absolutely, and wonderful. This this, uh, this LaBelle book. I need to add this to yes, my collection. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> wow. But where can we read your writing? Because you 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 know you have uh, you you contribute to various um, blogs and you know you write articles and stuff in between the books. Where can we find it all in one place? Um, um, on my website, adelbertay.com, uh, I have uh, several pages you can go to that contain, you know, long blogs. And then there's the Peter and the Wolves memoir, which is out and available on Amazon. And Wyla Bell Matters, um, yeah. with more on the way. Fabulous. Adelbertay. Thank you so, so much for speaking with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Adele. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I had such a good time. <laughs> Next week, we have the incredible animatronic of the Scissor Sisters. And hey, listen, if you enjoyed this episode with Adele Berté, rock and roll hero, first of all, go and watch the film Born in Flames because it will blow your mind. Second of all, like the podcast, subscribe to it, write us a nice review, tell a friend, tweet about it. There's all kinds of things that you can do for us uh, that will hopefully not cost you much time, won't cost you any money and will really help us out a lot. <laughs>